as I said, it's more about a sense of the depth of human experience. For me, it was a sense of being connected with other people, with other beings, with invisible realities that I can't imagine. And yet how real is the need for that kind of connection. This is In Good Faith, listening to first-person experiences of faith and belief. On In Good Faith, it's our privilege to hear stories and accounts from believers told in their own words. Our hope is to listen with an open heart, celebrating the power of faith and belief and what those stories mean to the ones who tell them. Elaine Pagels is the Harrington Spear Payne Foundation Professor of Religion at Princeton University and a recipient of the Rockefeller, the Guggenheim, and the MacArthur Fellowships. She's the author of The Gnostic Gospels, Beyond Belief, and Revelations. In 2018, HarperCollins published her Why Religion, a memoir of Dr. Pagel's spiritual journey as well as her academic work. Elaine Pagels, thank you for speaking with me today in good faith. Thank you. It's good to talk with you. What a joy to read Why Religion. It's such a personal work, and it seemed like you must have had some hesitation in, in doing that. Absolutely. I mean, you know, it's kind of, as you say, it's just not what academics do, is demonstrate that the work that they do and research they love is really connected with their lives. I mean, the idea of objectivity suggests you, you should keep a distance. But in fact, I think the best work in the humanities, at, at least in literature and poetry and music and history, comes from people who are deeply engaged with certain kinds of issues and exploring them. And so I finally thought, OK, <laughs> I know it's not the way what you're supposed to do, but I'm going to do it anyway. <laughs> we are all benefiting for the fact you did. I love to read about other people's lives. I think anyone's life has such a narrative that's quite riveting when you know if you can if you can hear that story and it's just easier to understand what engages us when when you know something about the background especially you know when you get to a topic like religion which is deeply felt and personal uh, it's it's important to know the perspective from which the speaker is coming i'd like to look back at what you talk about, which I think is a spiritual awakening of your 15-year-old self that you'd been raised in Christianity. But you had this experience going to a Billy Graham revival. And I wonder if you could just share what that moment was like for you. Yes. <laughs> well, I wrote about it because I had come from a family that was Christian culturally. You know, I'd been brought to a Methodist church much of my life. I most people I knew were Christians one way or the other, but it wasn't very important. And my father had given it all up as soon as he encountered Darwin. And he, he decided at that point that the fierce religion of his family was misguided. He just abandoned the whole thing. And I was always brought up to think that religion was for people who just were uneducated, didn't understand science. So then when I was a teenager, I happened to go with friends to a Billy Graham crusade just because it was in San Francisco and it seemed like it would be interesting. And it, it was an extraordinary experience. It opened up uh, the sense of a cosmic dimension in my life, a spiritual world. And it almost felt like I'd been living on a flat earth and suddenly it had a vertical dimension. Mm. So it was powerful. Had you had what you would call, looking back, spiritual experiences before that? 
Well, perhaps glimmers of them, but I wouldn't have called them that, you see. That wasn't part of the vocabulary or the, the world in which I lived. So this was an unexpected discovery. And I realized how powerful that can be. And it opened many things up to me. I mean, later, as you know, I left the group, the evangelical church that I attended for that first year. But it had permanently changed the way I understand what religious traditions are about. They're not about ideas and beliefs as much as they are about experience. Mm. That's really a good insight. People talk a lot today about being spiritual, but maybe not religious. Or people say they might be religious, but not spiritual. Do you see any difference between those terms? Well, you know, the way people are using them is certainly different. And when they say religious, they mean engaged with an institution, usually. And when they say spiritual, they mean, I'm searching for something of a spiritual dimension. I don't know quite what it is, but I, I don't think it's encapsulated in the traditions with which I'm familiar. So they're kind of striking out on their own. And I do think... You know, I teach the history of religion at Princeton. Right now I have a class of 230 students, and it's wonderful. But the early movement is full of energy and dynamism and lives transformed and startling things happening. And when it becomes encapsulated in the creeds, in the fourth century, so that being a Christian means you recite the Nicene Creed, which is a set of doctrines written by a committee of bishops. It doesn't have the engagement and the vitality of the early movement, which was called the way. It was a way of life. It was a way of being transformed. It was a way of a meaningful and powerful way to live. I wonder if we could talk a minute about personal experience. Sometimes they come to us unbidden and other times sought out. And I found examples of both of these as you wrote. Again, these are very personal. I'm only asking because they are written in your book, because you've, you've given a lot of thought to these experiences. One, that circle of sisters before your son's surgery, I believe. Yes, that's right. That was a very remarkable experience. So the experience in the hospital you, you're hitting on a very important issue, and that was a difficult decision in the book, too. Do I write about what I call experiences I can't explain uh, or not? Because I thought, oh, now they'll think she's really going off the deep end. You know? <laughs> but, but people have them, and they happened, as you said, unbidden. This was an experience in which I was in baby's hospital in New York on a concrete floor next to the little crib with my one-year-old son, our only child, who was about to have open-heart surgery in the morning for a, a problem with his heart. And of course, surgery on a baby is very dangerous. And I was terribly worried. And I was just sitting there finally by myself at night because the hospital didn't want parents to bother with, but I wouldn't leave him there in the hospital alone. So he was asleep in this little iron crib. And as I sat there, I was maybe half asleep or half in a kind of dream state. And I had the sense that suddenly there were people sitting with me. We were sitting in a circle and they were holding hands in this circle. 
It was a circle of women. And then I realized I could add people to the circle. So I, I sort of added my brother and my parents who were then in California. And their presence was very comforting. There were no words in this experience. It was just the sense of not being alone. There was people there. And after that, the fear decreased a great deal. And then this sense of their presence sort of vanished, but it left me with a sense of peace. And I felt the surgery would go well as it did. And then the next day when my son was taken into surgery, I sat down and wrote a note to one of the women in this sort of dream. And I said, you know, last night I was here in New York and I was alone in the hospital. And I had the sense that you were sitting with me in a group of women. And it was very comforting to see you. And I sent the letter off. And then a couple days later, I got a letter from her saying that that night she was sitting with what she called her sister's circle. And they were praying for us. They were praying for my son and for me. I had no idea they were doing that. I still have that letter. It staggered me because whatever they were doing sitting in a, a room in California was available and present to me in that state of mind and that state of being. I don't know how to explain it, but I know that it happened. With an experience like that, you could say that's an amazing coincidence, or you can decide that there is something beyond what we see. Did you feel like you had a choice there, or was it just clearly to you one thing or the other? It was clearly one thing or the other, because coincidence, first of all, I didn't really know where this woman was. She had left New York and had gone to California. I didn't know she had a sister circle with whom she did prayer. I didn't know that they were actually aware that that was the night before my son's surgery. This could not have been a coincidence. And she knew it too. You know, when you, when you have had people read this or you've shared this personally in an interview or some other speaking situation, do you have people confide in you experiences like this that maybe they might not feel comfortable sharing with others, just as you said, they may think you're off your rocker? Yes, of course. They do. You know, and I've talked with ministers who say, oh, we hear stories like this all the time, or stories of someone seeing someone who has died, or they could be considered coincidence, but something like that could not to me. Hmm. Also with an anthropologist friend at Stanford University, and, and um, she was telling me some things like this. And I said, well, that's, that's remarkable. She said, yes, it's the difference between an anthropologist who's looking for God, and one who thinks that the people who do that are crazy. So, you know, <laughs> there are many people who, who negate any kind of experience they feel doesn't make rational sense. What has made you open to that? I think being in an extreme situation. Mm. I, you know, I think it's a matter partly of being receptive. And if you're in a state, that night I was really in a very intensely emotional state. I think in certain states of mind, you can experience things that are otherwise something you simply wouldn't pick up. Hmm. What do you think about that? When I hear those, I have no reason to doubt people's experience. I've often actually wished I could have more of those experiences. And it wasn't until I was in my mid-40s that I actually had something similar happen to me that ended up I can't even explain it, but uh, a son of mine was lost in a national park. I was the, the scoutmaster. We didn't even know he was lost. And I got lost, which was just totally unreasonable. But I got lost in the same place he did. 
and ended up in the same place he was and found him clinging to the edge of a ledge. Oh, my gosh. I'm just telling you, you you have had an experience like that, and you were in a very alert state, right? Looking for your son and feeling lost. Absolutely true. This is not a normal state of being. I mean, it's highly intensified, and I'm so glad you found him. But yes, I mean, I think that's there are situations when people have these experiences, and, and they often don't talk about them. For me, I decided to talk about them because I was talking to a poet who's a good friend of mine. Her name is Marie Howe, and she wrote a beautiful poem called Annunciation. It's a poem about the mother of Jesus, Mary, receiving the presence of an angel. And, and it's the presence of the angel is expressed as a kind of energy and divine love coming toward her from this invisible presence. And I said, Marie, how did you write that poem? It's such an amazing poem. She said, oh, well, actually, it happened to me. But of course, I couldn't say that. <laughs> and I said, why not? And she said, well, that's the last taboo. She meant talking about having some experience like that. And I said, oh, okay, well, I'm going to write about that. <laughs> if it's the last taboo, there's something powerful there. Yes, absolutely. Now, we talked about this being in an intense situation and this experience with the sister circle coming to you sort of unbidden. But when you and your husband were hoping to have a child, in a way you sought out going to what was called a fertility ritual. Can you tell me about this one? You know, to put it that way sounds funny, but it was sort of an artistic, I won't say a joke. This is an artist in New York who has whose performance art is consists of rituals and she did one that i heard about called ritual for an end to bitterness and i thought it was such an interesting idea i said how did you ever get this idea for a ritual for an end to bitterness she said well i wanted to do a ritual of celebration but what prevented celebration was people's anger and bitterness so i tried to do another ritual and this was done in a performance space as an artwork. Then later she said to me, well, do you have children? And I said, no, I, I really would love to have children. My husband and I wanted to have children, but we haven't. And she said, well, I'll do a ritual for you. And I thought, this is a little weird, but this is before that other experience, of course, because I didn't have children yet. So she invited me and four other artists to her loft and we focused on some meditation. There were candles. We sat together and we went through some experiences in which each of these women spoke about having children. And each of these were artists and they had children. And I became aware of something that was completely unconscious, which was I became aware that I was afraid of dying in childbirth. And it just staggered me. I don't remember ever hearing of anyone dying in childbirth. I don't ever remember hearing anyone talk about it, but it almost felt like a DNA kind of memory, which it could be. Innumerable women have. In the ancient world, it was very frequent. When I realized that, that was like an opening, another kind of revelation, just from, from inside. And then a week later, I got pregnant. <laughs> that was <laughs> Now, is that a coincidence? I talked to my doctor, uh -huh. fertility doctor, and he said, well, you know, these things happen. I don't know. Is it psychosomatic? Could well be. But whatever it was, it was another one of those experiences I can't explain. Mom. 
We're speaking with Dr. Elaine Pagels today, a scholar of the Dead Sea Scrolls at Princeton University and author of Why Religion, published in 2018 by HarperCollins. When we return, Pagels discusses what her journey taught her and why the material from the Dead Sea Scrolls is important to Christians. I'm really happy that you've been a journaler of these experiences because you look back and you, you see things or put together moments that you only could do because you had recorded them. I think maybe people need to write these things down when they do experience them. I was brought up to be a rationalist. And so I would have given some alternate explanation, as you said, coincidence. But there are some things that aren't coincidence. I'm sure your experience could not have been coincidence. Something else was going on there. I, I'm absolutely sure that I could never have invented the scene that I experienced in that little hospital room. I just felt it was important to speak about these, partly because my friend could write about anything and does, except that. When you hear people say that 20th century people see religion failing or falling away, with people having experiences like this, uh, do you think so? Or is that just part of our human experience that will always be with us? It seems to me it's part of the human experience that we have. And many people who might have experiences they can't explain would simply dismiss them. But that's what happens in a secular world where, you know, people say, well, that can't happen. But I do, I do sense that experience is much deeper than we realize. And that what I think of as a spiritual dimension is much more so. So you said many people are no longer going to church or whatever, but that's the institutional practice that can just be a habit for some people. For many people, it's a powerful experience. It's an important experience. It's a devotional experience. And for others, it's just an old habit that doesn't mean very much. What they're looking for is something deeper and something more meaningful. And so I don't think it's true that people are becoming less engaged with questions of the spirit. It's just that institutional churches aren't, are in many cases not fulfilling those needs. The Billy Graham crusade was a powerful experience for me. But after that, a year later, I had to leave that church because, because things were said that struck me as terribly wrong and contradictory to the spirit of the Christian message. And that can happen with people in various institutions, as you know. You have a journey outlined, and I'm wondering, from that first crusade to now, how has your understanding of God or the divine changed over those years? That's a good question. I guess my sense of how we engage a divine source, God, whatever that deeper reality is, has certainly changed. That I, I, I was told in that group that it was a matter of believing in a certain in certain things. Uh, it, of course, it does have to do with belief. It has to do with faith. But as I said, it's more about a sense of the depth of human experience. For me, it was a sense of being connected with other people, with other beings, um, with invisible realities that I can't imagine entirely. I mean, we use metaphors, you know, God is Father, or as mother, even in the traditions that I study, 
God is person. God is Jesus. God is divine light. All of these are metaphors for something quite beyond our language. So I guess I've become more aware of how limited our language is, and yet how real is the need for that kind of connection, at least for me. I like your use of the word metaphor there. As you've done your studies with the various Gnostic Gospels, the Gospel of Thomas, Philip, and others, it seems like that a literal reading of those often precludes a lot of understanding that can be found seeing the metaphorical parts of those. Would you talk to me about balancing out a close reading of what the exact words mean literally or, or what the underlying message could be? When I read the Gospel of Mark, which I think is a very powerful narrative, I keep recognizing more and more that it's, it reads like a simple story. Any 10-year-old, 12-year-old could appreciate the story eight-year-old maybe, but also hidden in that story, there are many images and metaphors that are being used for the kingdom of God, for example, for the divine presence. If you look at the prophet Ezekiel, for example, the, the first chapter of the prophecy of Ezekiel in the Hebrew Bible, he speaks about an overwhelming sense that he felt of awe and wonder and terror in the presence of a divine reality. And, and he just says, well, I sort of like I saw a throne and there was something like a human being on the throne, and, but it wasn't a human being. It was, I saw jewels and I saw lightning and fire and crystal and, and brilliance, what in Hebrew is called the glory of God, which means radiance, shining. So he, wa- he wants to say, I saw the divine. I felt like I saw the divine one. But all I can tell you that I saw is this dazzling light. And he uses every kind of image of dazzling light from lightning to fire to jewels, as I said, rainbows, crystal. And it's, it's as though he's trying to tell you about a dream or a vision. If you tell a dream, you can say it's sort of like this and sort of like that. But what you, what you might see in the dream is not quite equivalent to the words with which you can describe it. I think understanding that so much of this has to be metaphor, which doesn't mean that we're not talking about reality. It just means we're talking about a reality that's beyond our language. I'm impressed that so many times, at least in New Testament, that some sort of visitation or experience that people have, they're told, fear not, which seems to imply that When we have an experience outside of our normal everyday lives, fear is often our first reaction when we don't understand. Have you lost fear of things through the experiences of your life? To some extent, for sure. I mean, I think like anyone, I have things I'm afraid of. But I do, you know, one of the things that strikes me about the stories in the the New Testament, which I'm now teaching again, is that there are many experiences that can't be explained, many healings and so forth. And the basic message, and then, you know, Jesus is terribly crucified at the end of Mark and buried, and and the first ending of Mark is quite bleak, except that someone appears in the grave and says, he's risen. But these are stories, all of them are stories about hope. 
They're stories about hope beyond our imagination. And I think that's what makes them very powerful because we need those stories. In the book, you talk in depth and very personally and powerfully, I should add, about the death of your son, death of your husband, which causes me to ask, what brings you joy in your faith life? Love and friendship, sometimes with family, sometimes with friends, the beauty of the world. Sometimes it's music, many things. I don't have a sad life now. That's, I wrote that book 30-some years after those things happened. I don't understand people who write some kind of tell-all thing after some catastrophe strikes. I couldn't have possibly written anything for decades after those things happened, and I didn't intend to ever write it at all. It's just that, as I said in the beginning of the book, when you get older, some, some of the things you put in the background come back, and you have to deal with them. And I started writing just personally for myself. I didn't think I would publish it. And it still feels very revealing to have done so. But that's okay. I thought that's just somebody's life, you know. As you said, it's, we've all been there, right? The cell phone goes off when you're in the middle of something. And so I thought, well, why not? That is what happened. And it was also felt like it was a, a way of fusing the scholarly voice and the personal voice, which, as you said before, are often kept very separate in a kind of pretense that you have no engagement with the topic. You know, it's your objective. Well, I'm not objective. I'm, I'm in it. I think good work and passionate study comes out of that when people are engaged with what they're exploring. What should I ask you that I don't know to ask you? I would like to just say that I'm studying Christian tradition, the New Testament, fathers of the church, all the traditional sources we have. And those were available for 2,000 years. But when you look at the, the discovery of secret gospels, they add and expand the way we understand the complexity of that movement. And they can add dimensions that we didn't know were there. One of them is the suggestion that Jesus had secret teaching, and that teaching was about finding one's own connection with God. Teaching that there is based on the understanding that humans are created in the image of God, and that that's a kind of hidden link between ourselves and the divine source. So these are quite beautiful texts. And they can add something. It's not that you would, or I would take them and throw out the ones in the New Testament and substitute these. These amplify and open up much more than we knew before. And I think they're a, a marvelous and indispensable addition to what we know about the Christian faith. Dr. Elaine Pagels is the author, among other books, of Why Religion? And we've referred to that just a bit, a book I would highly recommend. Elaine Pagels, thank you so much for speaking with me today in good faith. Well, good talking with you. So thank you very much. That's our time for today. Our episode was produced and edited by Heather Bigley. In Good Faith is committed to the idea that we all benefit from hearing people of widely varying backgrounds share their personal experience with faith and belief. In fact, we think people with such experience deserve some of our best listening. For an upcoming episode, we're looking for your stories. If you have a story about how art has impacted your understanding of a religious belief or strengthened your faith in some way, share it with us. 
Simply record your story on your phone's voice memo function and email the recording to ingoodfaith@byu.edu. If you enjoy this show, be sure and leave a five-star review or comment where you get your podcasts and help spread the word. Our Twitter feed is at ingoodfaithbyu. In Good Faith is a production of BYU Radio. I'm Stephen Cap Perry. I hope you'll join me again soon right here in Good Faith.